Well, if you're new to Grace Life, perhaps this is your first time at Grace Life Deltona, and you're curious a little bit about, you know, what's Grace Life all about. From day one, Tommy and I, we really wanted to have a church that reached unchurched people. You know, there, there's kind of two kinds of churches if you break it into two different categories. There, there's churches that reach church people, and they do a really good job of um, providing an atmosphere where Christians feel welcomed and catered to, and a lot of people will transfer their membership from their current church to those kind of churches, and they, they basically aim everything in their church around targeting churched people, Christians. But then there's also churches that target and aim at unchurched people, people that don't go to church, people that aren't familiar with the Bible, um, maybe even people that used to go to church, but now they're de-churched. They got burned. They saw how the sausages were made and it's grossed them out. They've lost their appetite, right? They've seen behind the scenes, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and they're sort of like, yeah, church is not for me anymore. And so from day one, Tommy and I, we really wanted to plant a church that reached unchurched people. And so that's why our motto, if you can see it up here, it says, Grace Life Church, where the insiders exist for the outsiders. That really was the motto we chose because that was the passion that we had. Grace Life Church, where the insiders exist for the outsiders. You know, we wanted to, to like regain that missionary focus that the church ought to have. You know, there was a famous a Christian, his, his name was uh, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, maybe you've heard of him, but he said one time, he said, every Christian is either a missionary or they're an imposter. Like every Christian is called to be a missionary, to reach the unchurched. Yeah, we fellowship and we gather together with the saints and yeah, we study the Bible and yeah, we pursue holiness and yeah, we go after Jesus to live pure and holier lives. But at the end of the day, the primary reason that we're here and we're not in heaven right now is to reach people that are unchurched. And so we made that our motto, Grace Life Church, where the insiders exist for the outsiders because we really wanted that to be our DNA. We wanted people to own that in our church, especially ourselves. Tommy and I really wanted to embody that in our families and in ourselves, so... That's sort of everything that, that Grace Life churches are about. They're insiders existing for the outsiders. So the question we're faced with this morning is this. What does it take to be a good missionary? Like, if you want to be effective at reaching outsiders as an insider, what are some keys that you should focus on? What are some, you know, some specific habits that we should adopt? Well, believe it or not, John 17 answers that question for us. Brother Joe read John 17, and this is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. But what's really rad is when you look at John 17, when you look at this prayer from Jesus, in t contained in all of it, it is like the ingredients for being a healthy missionary. John 17 is really a great commission prayer. And maybe you picked up on this as Joe was reading, but, but verse 20 Jesus says this, he says, my prayer is not for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus is praying for the effectiveness of these insiders in reaching the outsiders. And what's really cool is in this passage, Jesus links together three behaviors that characterize every effective missionary. Three behaviors. And here's what they are. The first one. 
First key, if you want to be an effective missionary, if you want to be an insider who is effective reaching outsiders, Jesus says, first of all, you got to do this. Good missionaries, they don't make the outsiders feel like outsiders. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 20 and 21. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice the words in black there. I'm praying, Father, that the folks that are going to hear the gospel from these insiders, that they would be one. Evangelizer and evangelizee, missionary and mission field, insider and outsider. Jesus says, Father God, please help them become one. Jesus said evangelism is like one big happy family inviting another member into the fold to be one. And so that means this, evangelism, when it's done properly, is inherently, it's personal, it's affectionate, it's warm. I wish someone would have told me this when I was like a newbie Christian. Um, I I didn't get this concept for a long time. I'm still grasping it, what it means to be one, to be in the world but not of the world, to be distinct and holy and yet also affectionate towards unbelievers. I wish I knew what that looked like earlier in my Christian life because for a long time, I had a very adversarial evangelistic strategy with the world. Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you guys tracking with me this morning? Four of you? Awesome. Awesome. For example, when I first got saved, I was really big into these. Do you guys know what these are? You guys seen these? Chick tracks, they're called. They're rad. And um, they've got like the gospel message and it's clearly spelled out with pictures and there's verses in there. And it's, it's very simple. It's here's the way of salvation. You know, you're a sinner. You need a savior. Repent and believe. Put your faith in Jesus. There's even a part, it's really scary at the end where there's a guy sitting in a movie theater like this and there's like your whole life is broadcast up here. That's why I use this, right? And it says, here's what you did in your life. And so when I first became a Christian, I bought like a box of these bad boys and I was zealous. I would give them out to everybody. You know, I've always been a zeal, a zealot in whatever I've done in my life. So I was sort of like the Bible thumper your mama warned you about when I became a Christian. I totally was. So I bought a bunch of these tracks and I would hand them out to everybody. Like I'd put them under windshield wipers. If your window was down to stoplight, I'd say, hey, you have one of these yet? You know, I'd give them that. I even at my work, I would go around and I would leave them on people's desks. Like everybody would be out at lunch break, they'd go to Arby's or whatever, and they would come back and there'd be a little chick track sitting there on their desk. And I remember, I had a lot of really awkward encounters, but one time, you can imagine when you come back from Arby's with your, you know, your sandwich or whatever, we got the meat, you come and sit down and all of a sudden there's a track right there. You don't even know who put it there. Well, you might know because everybody knew who I was, but... Um, I remember this one encounter, this dude from IT comes back upstairs and uh, he was the only guy that really came and found me out because I gave these to everybody. He, he came up and he said, um, did you leave this on my desk? And I said, yes, I did. And he goes, why? I said, because you need Jesus, bro. That, just like that. And I wasn't very smart. Yeah. And he threw it across my desk and he goes, this offends me. And like, I wish I could tell you that was like the only situation that was like that, where it was like this really intense, hostile encounter 
with the outsiders, with the unchurched. But I had a lot of encounters like that. And I handed those tracks out for years. And listen, the tracks are not bad. They're not evil. You have to understand what the gospel is and who Jesus is in your sin before you can be a Christian. You have to understand theology to be saved. So the tracks aren't bad evangelism. The way I was using them was bad evangelism. You don't need less than the facts of the gospel to be saved. You need more. Because what I was lacking in that evangelistic strategy was the warmth and the affection that Jesus is talking about when he prays that we would be one with the outsiders. It's not just getting people to agree to the facts of the gospel and signing on the dotted line with some intellectual data. No, it's about Jesus praying for us. Father, I pray that all of them may be one. Evangelizer and evangelizee. My question is this, do you really think the people in my work felt that way? Like some impersonal track just on their desk, they come back and they read it. Oh, thank you. So, I mean, nobody's going to feel that way. Nobody. Your family's not going to feel that way. But if you have this adversarial view of evangelism where you're sort of like hammering people or they're a project or here you go, you know, if you have any questions, you know, let me know. I mean, that's very impersonal and it's very ineffective. And you know this too, whenever you feel like you're going to be rejected and you're already expecting a negative reaction from somebody, what we all do normally is we begin to retreat a little bit, we withdraw a little bit, we withhold a little bit of affection, we dehumanize, we become less vulnerable, and all of a sudden we become plastic and aloof. And so there was no warmth on my part. My evangelistic strategy... uh, it, 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 was, it was less than Christian. And that's why if you ask me today, like, okay, Jeff, fair enough. What do you think is a good gospel presentation today? What's your ideal scenario, right? If you ask me that, I would say this. If I had to give you the best way that evangelism looks, the best case study or whatever, uh, I would say the La Abri Fellowship. Francis and Edith Schaefer, um, they started this, this work in the Swiss Alps in the 1950s. They moved from America and they moved to the Swiss Alps and they, had this, they bought this little cottage. And their idea was this. We're going to welcome anybody and everybody into our house. And we're going to teach them about Christianity. But not only that, we're also going to model what Christianity looks like up close, like personal. And what's really rad is the word la abri, it actually means covering. It's a shelter. It was meant to be a shelter from the world, a covering for the world. I know this sounds crazy to us Americans. We're like, you actually invited people you didn't know into your house to live with you? That's exactly what they did. They drew near to them. And the reason the Schaefers did this is because, I'll give you their mission statement at La Abri. Check this out. We are as concerned for living as we are for thinking. And from the beginning of the concern has been that the truth is as much exhibited in everyday life as it is defended in discussion. They're like, we, we got to do more than just teach people. We want them to actually experience like what Christianity feels like and looks like. And so that's why they started this, this wonderful work, this missionary work. And one of the coolest phrases that I've ever heard of somebody that visited La Abri was this. They said, um, I think my slide got removed, but there was a guy that said, every time I visit here, I feel human again. 
Like every time I'm around you Christians, like I walk in and I'm like, okay, I'm a little bit on edge, but then the more I get to hear you and know you and be around you, I'm like, I feel like a human being again. That's what happened to Nancy Piercy. She's like one of the best evangelists and apologists alive today. If you love Ravi Zacharias, you got to check out Nancy. She is legit. In the 1970s, she's a hippie. She shows up, unbeliever, on the doorstep of La Abri. They take her in. And she said, I have never heard somebody preach the book of Romans and make it that clear and that true to life as Francis Schaeffer did. It was so human. It didn't feel like some religious funk being placed upon me where it's sort of like, hey, to become a Christian, you have to become less human and devolve. No, it was so integrated with life and experience. She's like, it blew me away. So she left there a few months later, converted to Christianity, shows up unbeliever, leaves converted Christian, and now she's a powerhouse for Jesus. You'll see so many examples, if you Google La Abri Fellowship on the internet, of people blowing through the cottage in the Swiss Alps and having their lives profoundly transformed and changed. I think this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. I think he was talking about God, make them one, make them vulnerable. You got to put yourself out there and allow yourself to be rejected if you're truly going to do a work for Jesus. And so maybe just a resolution, something to ponder for this year. If we want to be a church that reaches outsiders, in 2020, let's step outside of our comfort zone and let's open up our lives and homes to non-Christians, right? And get personal with unbelievers. It can look as simple as inviting that neighbor across the street that doesn't go to church Maybe you, you wake up every Sunday and there's like that tension where he's cutting his grass. I mean, because he's made in the image of God. He's exercising dominion, bro. He's got to be a man. So he's out there cutting his grass. And so you get in your car and he sees your family. He's a little bit of tension there. What if you go over and say, hey, bro, come eat dinner with us sometime. Bring your family over. Draw near. It could be as simple as that. Because we never want outsiders to feel like outsiders. Like a project. We want them to feel like, man, we'd love for you to join the insiders. We'd love for you to be one of us. That's the first key Jesus says. To be a good missionary, don't make outsiders feel like outsiders. Y'all ready for number two? Yeah. If you're 10 years old and younger, I know you're getting squirrely. I'm going to let you shout in church for one time in your life, okay? Say this. When I count to three, say insiders for outsiders, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Insiders. Outsiders. I thought you'd be louder than that. That's cool, though. Um, second key, good missionaries, good missionaries don't make insiders feel like outsiders. Something else Jesus says in John 17 is how important relationships are in here to evangelism out there. Jesus says, I have given them, the disciples, he's talking to God, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. This is so rad. Jesus says to the Father, listen, I gave him the glory you gave to me. What glory is he talking about? The glory of being united. Of being one, of being like, we're pals, we're buddies. We're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You know, the glory that God gives believers, the thing that makes us sparkle and shine to the unbelieving world is actually when they come in here and they don't see strife and like fighting, they come in here and they're like, dude, you guys have such a deep, real love for each other. 
That is actually what makes us sparkle. It's not how smart we are in the Bible. It's not how many verses we memorize, per se. It's when they come in here and they're like, man, you guys have such a deep, warm affection for each other. I got to get in on that. I've got to. I don't have anything like that in my life right now. I live in a woke culture. Everybody's against me, right? I'm looking for some love and some affirmation. That's what makes us sparkle. That's the glory God's given to us. You know, I I got to see this um, up close and personal at my church this past summer because uh, we got a surf camp at our church and um, it's the only surf camp in our city that has a Bible study attached to it. So there's a lot of surf camps, but we're the only surf camp that's attached to a church and has a Bible study built into it. And so, um, you know, the kids come all summer long and they get a lot of surfing and they get some Jesus too, part of every day. There's devotions, there's all kinds of cool stuff. But one of the, one of the really neat things they do is they do this thing called digging for treasure. And so everybody will get on their surfboards, they'll paddle out. Everybody at the camp will paddle out, everybody. And they form a big circle and they join hands in the water, out there on their boards. And then they do this thing called digging for treasure, which is they take turns affirming things that they like about the other people in the camp that they've learned that week. And so like they'll say, you know, Brad, I've watched you all week and you, you helped set up every day. You carried surfboards down to the beach. You are so, um, you're so helpful. Like you never complain. Like they take turns digging out this treasure and presenting it to everybody else in the circle. So the surf camp. And what, what's really neat is I saw a young lady in her 20s get transformed and saved by Jesus, not from a tract or from pressure, but from a culture, like literally just being in a culture. She came the first time she came, the first couple days I saw her at church. She was around the campus. She was surfing. She was around us. We had a garage sale that week. She was around a lot. She's kind of skittish. She she hadn't been in church a lot before. She's kind of like feeling comfortable. As the week goes on, she becomes curious. She starts asking questions. By the end of the week, literally, she's driving in a van with a bunch of surf camp campers and she's like, how do I get in on this? Because I'm all about this right now. Like everything that you're, like nobody even gave her the facts of the gospel yet. Nobody said, hey, agree to this or you're gonna go burn there, bro. There wasn't any of that yet. They didn't gotten that far yet. It was literally her observing the culture and saying, how do I get in on this? What do I have to believe to get in on this? Because I'm all about this. It was absolutely incredible and she got saved and hit with the Holy Ghost. But she got saved from a culture, a culture where she looked around because I think it was Jason asked her later on and said, what was it about your experience here that made you ask the question, you know? And she said, I have never, ever been in an environment so affirming before where everybody was just so loving and caring towards one another. And you know, it's our love, it's our unity that makes us sparkle to the unbelieving world. And so that's why backbiting and gossip and like petty quarrels, like it's amazing. I've been reading through the pastoral epistles over the Christmas break. It's amazing how many times Paul says that pastors have to have a sincere faith and a clear conscience. Because he says, if you don't have a clear conscience as a leader of God's church, you're gonna start quarrels over needless, useless words. You're gonna, you're gonna make disciples that quarrel over everything. They're not gonna have any love. They're gonna have the gift of discernment, which means they can't get along with everybody else, right? In the, in the world, it's getting kind of quiet, right? Um, and that's why Paul says five different times in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, you have to have a clear conscience. You have to know God. You have to have your sins forgiven because if you don't know that God loves you and affirms you, bro, and you're teaching some kind of legalism, 
It's going to jack people up. It's going to lead to quarrels. It's not going to have the warm, affirming environment that the church should have. The LGBT community should come in here and say, dang, we ain't got nothing on y'all. And what I mean by that is they should come in here and see a level of depth of love and a covering and a graciousness that you can't get anywhere else in the world. And listen, this is where we find ourselves in the mix. Because listen, Tommy and I, we're, we're conservative Christian theologians. We're reformed. Our churches are reformed. It just means we, we, we super want to get the Bible right. And so our churches, we take sin seriously. We, we, there's, no, there's not a whole lot of like, oh yeah, whatever, whatever you want. No, we take it seriously. We have the hard meetings. We have the hard talks. We're not afraid of giving the tough news. Here's, here's a temptation though for churches like ours that take the Bible and sin seriously. Here's the temptation, just me being transparent. The temptation is to major on the doctrine part and to minor on the culture part. Which means you can get Jesus dead right in your preaching and in your theology, but when it comes to hanging around you, people don't feel like they're with Jesus. I've been part of, and, and I've been, I've visited a lot of Reformed churches that are as doctrinally precise and sharp as a Ginsu knife, but as cold as a frozen pizza. Like you crack a joke and it goes 20 feet over somebody's head, bro. They're not even used to laughing anymore. They stopped that 20 years ago when they became a Christian, right? It's like they got the doctrine down, bro, but the culture is sort of like, uh, they're not fun to be around, right? They're not the kind of person that you want to go watch the ball game with later, the Saints and the whoever they're playing, the Vikings, I think. And listen, I think conservative Christians should be known not only for our Calvin, Calvin quotes, right? But for our big bear hugs, we're like, you hug the life out. We should be known for our love. We should be known for our laughter. I think Christians should have like the most healthy sense of humor of anybody on the planet, I think. Because that's how Jesus was. Now, I know there's a few that are like, wait a second. Hold on, wait, wait. Tommy needs to be, what's, what's going on here? Because you're thinking to yourself, Jesus had a good sense of humor. He did. He had, I think Jesus, if we sat with him, I think they sat around the fire and they laughed. You know, for example, if you're looking for a text, give me a text. I think Mark chapter three shows you how funny Jesus was because Mark chapter three says Jesus gave his disciples nicknames. Did you know that? They had their real names and then they had nicknames that Jesus actually, the Bible says Jesus gave him those names. And so he renamed a guy named Simon. He named, what is his name? Peter, the rock, the dude who is always vacillating and he flakes out the last minute. You can, he's always taken off. You can't find the guy. Where's Peter at? Where's the rock at? He's hiding again, <laughs> you know? That's not my favorite one. My favorite is uh, he gave these two brothers, James and John. He gave them the nickname Boanerges, which means the sons of thunder. Do you know why he gave them that nickname? Because there's this time, it's in Luke. They see some Samaritans. They're not really the pure Christians. They don't teach the Bible the way we do. And they wanted to call down fire on them and kill them. Remember that? And Jesus goes, um, you don't know what spirit you're of, bro. Because they're like, hey, Jesus, why don't we call down fire on the Christians who are Bernie supporters? Let's nuke them. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was sort of like their, their MO, bro. And Jesus is like, bro, and Jesus got such a kick out of it, he nicknamed them, okay, you're the sons of thunder now. I mean, just imagine that's just drenched with sarcasm. I'm sure they sat around the campfire and James and John are out somewhere. He's like, hey, we're the sons of thunder. Right? Nuking some folks? I mean, where are the, where? you know? G 
Jesus, I think, had a really, really deep and healthy sense of humor because Christianity is not all head. Christianity is holistic. It's head and heart. It's doctrine and culture. It's accuracy in theology, but that accuracy in theology should always lead to beauty in relationships. Always. It's holistic. It's head and heart. And I think, you know, conservative churches like ours where teach the Bible and we're not going to waffle on that, we're great on the doctrine. But you need more than doctrine to survive as a church. I should have got like 100% amens there. I'll prove it to you. I'll prove why you need more than theology to survive. This chart shows the history of American Presbyterianism. I've always got to prove my points because otherwise you won't take me seriously. Think I'm up here just being rhetoric or whatever. Check it out. You started with like three Presbyterian branches, right? And that'd be enough, right? There's three. But check out what happens, bro, as you move through history. You get all kinds of splits and factions. And if you look closely, it'll actually tell you some of these church splits happened over such minute issues as which translation of the Bible was the right one. And so some folks are like, the King Jimmy is the only way to fly. And some other folks are like, nah, you know. So you see all these church splits. Some people are splitting because some people's kids watch SpongeBob and that's allowed in the church. So we're going to split off and start our own denomination now. And is this what Jesus died for? Is this what Jesus had in mind when he said, I want you to stand firm and I don't want you not to compromise on the truth? Is this what he was talking about? Fights over stupid stuff and quarrels over Bible translations? No, amen. Now, here's the ironic thing. If you talk to these people, they thought they were preserving and safeguarding the future of Christianity. Actually, they were destroying the future of Christianity because this kind of crap makes my job harder as a pastor because I got to get these people back in church. Their kids got rebuked because they, mom and dad let them watch Spongebob. And so now I got to go to their house and explain to them for the thousandth time why Jesus actually loves them is for them. I think we've got to be so careful. I've got to be so, my default mode is my, I'm, my soul is like a car out of alignment. I always pull towards legalism, always. Rules for rules sake. That's where my heart goes. And we've got to be so careful as reformed and conservative churches that we, we don't allow our doctrine to become sectarian, elitist, and allow us just to cut off communication and quarrel over stupid and foolish things. We got to keep the main thing the main thing so that we can actually get along here and here and love one another. And it takes more than doctrinal purity to survive as a church. It takes more than that. What's, what's really cool is this. If you study church history and you study like where the Holy Spirit moves and where revival breaks out, um, you discover something very, very telling. Uh, for example, in the 1700s and 1800s, something really cool happened in Scotland. A couple of preachers, they sailed over there and started preaching. There was a guy, it was a guy named you know, John Wesley and there was a guy named George Whitfield. Completely different theological dudes. Like They wouldn't agree on some really, really fundamental things. But they were great friends and they had a really good respect for one another. They loved each other. And what's rad is they go over to Scotland, they start preaching outside in the open air and revival breaks out. Revival sweeps through. The whole country got transformed in the 1700s. And it lasted all the way into the first part of the 1800s. And what's really cool is this. After 150 years of revival in Scotland, a bunch of ministers got together and they had a conference where they talked about what are the marks of revival? How do you know when revival breaks out? What does it look like? Because they became experts in it. Like they knew what it looked like. And this is what they said, 1840, check this out. 
This is what revival looks like when it sweeps into a church or sweeps into a country. As has been clearly demonstrated by more than one revival, God's spirit of blessing never descends where a spirit of controversy and strife has obtained a footing. In other words, when the Holy Ghost looks down and you can't get along, homeboy bugs out. He's gone. The Spirit of God hovered around but fled from a scene of discord as from a doomed region where his dove-like temperament could find no resting place. And here, here's the kicker for me. This is convicting. No dwelling can be more distasteful, no vessel more unsuitable to him than a heart which delights itself with matters that, protect, that provoke contention and strife. Why does Paul constantly tell Timothy and Titus, listen, bro, you got to keep the gospel central so you'll have a clear conscience. Otherwise, you're going to wrangle over meaningless words, genealogies, and myths. You're not going to get the main thing, the main thing. Why is that important? Because the Holy Spirit does not settle down where there's a spirit of strife and controversy. And so with that in mind, as you think ahead to this year, 2020, just a second resolution, something to ponder. Make this a year where you draw even closer to the insiders in here. Like we've got to, we've got to aim from the get-go not to make other insiders feel like they're outsiders because if the insiders are made to feel like they're outsiders, again, it's going to make reaching those outsiders a lot more difficult task. And so make 2020 a year where you're drawing even closer. You're not fleeing. You're drawing closer to the insiders in the church. For example, maybe if you've fallen out of the routine of coming to church, just get back in the game again, bro. First week of January, you're here. Awesome job. I'm so thankful you're here. Come next week. In the week after, you know, turn over a new leaf. Get back into the routine of coming to church. If you don't have a ministry here, you haven't served anywhere yet, volunteer today. Sign up to serve somewhere. What's rad about serving, not only will you feel better because you're serving God, also you're going to rub shoulders with other folks that love Jesus. That's going to encourage you. That's going to fire you up. You're going to have a greater love for them. As you see them serve and they see you serve, join a home group. If you're not in a home group, join a small group. Get real. Bring iced tea and cookies. Confess sin, right? Be the church. Draw closer to the insiders because if you just know the Bible well, but you don't know what food allergies provoke my fibromyalgia, you're living beneath the dignity. It's corn, if you must know. I can't have corn, man, or I'll break out. You know, I'm in a bed somewhere with a cold sweat. Um, if you don't know what provokes my fibromyalgia, bro, you're living beneath the dignity of Jesus, right? So anyway, that's the second key. We got one more, and then the bounce house is on. It's on like Donkey Kong. The young people are like, amen. Um, the third key for effective missionary living. Good missionaries, this is the biggest one, don't feel like outsiders themselves. You know, one of the main themes of John 17 is joy, happiness. I'm stoked to be in Jesus. That's one of the main themes. Jesus mentions the word joy over and over and over and over again in John 17. It's woven through it all. And the reason that Jesus prays that his disciples have joy is because Jesus doesn't want these insiders to feel like outsiders, to not be sure they're in the kingdom. Am I in the family? Am I not in the family? Am I okay? Have I done enough God yet? And so that's why Jesus, he prays a lot in John 17 in this prayer for joy for his disciples. Now, what's interesting is that he's praying for them to have joy and they're standing like right here next to him. D.A. Carson said this, 
This prayer is not freestanding. It is intimately connected to chapters 14 and 16. Jesus is not off praying John 17 in a corner. He's in the middle of a crowd, his disciples right there and other people. He's praying and saying, God, please give them joy, and they're right there. Now, why is that important? I think it's because Jesus really wants his disciples to hear what he's saying in his prayer. Have you ever known somebody who's a Christian that when they pray, they're not just praying to God, they're praying for people that are standing there with them? You know what I'm talking about? Like they're praying and you're like, oh, that's for Sally. I hope she heard that one. That's right between the eyes, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know these kind of people. Jesus loved to do that. He not only prayed, he would preach while he was praying. He did that all the time. In John 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead and he prays and he goes, God, please raise Lazarus. And by the way, the reason I'm articulating this is because I know you always hear me, but I'm saying it for the sake of the people standing around me. That's what he says. There's three prayers in the gospel of John. All three take place in a crowd, all three. And the reason that's so important is because Jesus would pray in front of his disciples because he was trying to input courage and assurance and joy into them. He wants them to know that they're in the in crowd. In fact, he says that in verse 13. He says, God, I'm coming to you now. I'll be, I'll be there in three days, bro. I'm getting, I'll be right up there soon. But I'm praying these things now while I'm still in the world. I'm praying for their joy now, not when I get to heaven. I can just lean across heaven then and say, hey, hey God, will you give them joy? I'm praying to you now while I'm here because I want them to have the full measure of joy within them. I'm praying this right now for their benefit. I want them to hear me praying this. Because the disciples know that God and Jesus are tight. And they know whatever Jesus prays for, God's going to answer. So this is all about rooting them in the assurance that they're truly insiders. Because if the insiders don't have joy, if the insiders don't know that they're insiders, if they have an unclear conscience, if, they, if they're not sure that they're part of the Jesus fam, it's going to make loving insiders and loving outsiders nearly impossible. You know, 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because, do you guys know it? He, he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. If you're an insider who lacks any assurance that you're an insider, it's going to make it awfully difficult to love insiders and outsiders. You know, so, this is something, I, I didn't understand this for a long time as a Christian. It's another thing. I, I'm still learning a lot of stuff about Christianity. It's it's amazing how many ways I have whiffed it over the years and I've preached things that have hurt people and it's, it's, just, it's, it's a humbling experience to be a pastor of God's church. But something I didn't realize for a long time was somebody who doesn't get along with people and who has constant drama and friction, for a long time, I just thought they don't like people. I'm like, well, that person is just not a people person. They just, they hate people. That's why they act that way and they can't get along. I just, I thought that for a long time. I didn't realize that when somebody is prickly, and can't get along with anybody, it's not because they hate people. It's honestly, it's because they hate themselves. I never understood that for a long time. They're not comfortable like in their own skin with who they are. They have like these deep, unresolved issues where they're not quite settled. They're restless. And what happens is that unsettledness, it spills out on other people. You know, it's sort of like Jesus said one time, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Easy enough, but what if you don't like yourself very much? What if you are holding something over your own head that you did a long time ago and you can't forgive yourself? 
is going to make loving other people very difficult. How can you love your neighbor like yourself if you don't even like yourself? Jesus wants to root them in assurance because if we don't have a deep, deep knowledge and joy that we're, that we're one of God's children, it's going to make loving the outsiders more difficult. Because, listen, it, I, I think this is one of the biggest evangelism points for our culture of restless people, of loneliness skyrocketing, of people being woke and upset about everything. This is the word of encouragement our culture needs. Because there's a lot of people that have this deep internal restlessness, and as a result, they don't have any close relationships with anybody. For example, uh, if you guys know who Conan O'Brien is, um, only three people are confessing that they know who that is, but it's cool. Um, <laughs> he, he had a late night show for years. Now he's got a new show. It's called Conan O'Brien, He's a Friend. And uh, it's a really provocative title, but it's exactly what it sounds. I mean, this is what he says. He says, I've been doing TV shows for 25 years. I've done over 4,000 episodes with celebrity guests. And you'd think I have friends, but I don't. I'm actually being kind of honest. All my friends are people that work for me. Celebrities come on my show. They pretend to be really nice to me. But when the show's over, they get in a black SUV and they leave. So Conan O'Brien started a show called Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend in the hopes that he would make some real friends. This is actually it's a real thing. No joke. And so recently he had on the, uh, the guest, um, I think her name's Kristen Bell or Kirsten Bell, one of the two. She's, she's an actor on The Good Place. And she, he, she's like trying to encourage him and he's like, you know, I don't have any friends and nobody likes me and I'm a celebrity and I'm a loser. And he basically tells her, I think the reason I don't have friends is because I'm just too busy. And this is what she said. This is so profound. I had to read it. Kristen Bell said this. She said, here's my theory, Conan, about why you think you don't have friends because I personally... I know a lot of people that love you. And the available time in your day is not the reason that you don't have friendships. Maybe the reason you don't have friendships is because you don't practice enough self-care. Conan says, I don't. And Kristen said this, well, then maybe other people aren't the answer. Maybe you're the answer. Maybe you need to become friends with yourself first. I thought that was a really profound answer, and I think it's, it's starting to head down the path of where the gospel takes us finally. Because Conan, he's got this deep insecurity, this restlessness, right? And he feels like nobody likes him. And I think that describes our modern-day culture of everybody being upset about everything and prickly about everything. Millennials are prickly against baby boomers. Baby boomers are prickly against the millennials who are prickly. I mean, it's like this battle, But here's the deal. What if the gospel wasn't just about God saving you from hell and forgiving you? What if the gospel was equally about you being able to forgive yourself? What if it wasn't just about God becoming friends with you, but you actually becoming friends with yourself, beginning to like yourself? I mean, I think part of the gospel is getting you out of your own head, bro. Get you out of your own head, right? Amen. Like practice some self-compassion. Talk to yourself the way you talk to a close Christian friend. You would never tell a close Christian friend the things you tell yourself in your head. You're ruthless with yourself. What if the gospel was about showing self-compassion? You know, that's, and again, that's what a a great Christian thinker, Bernard of Clairvaux, believed. This guy, he was a brilliant Christian thinker. You can tell because he's got a really rad bowl cut going on there. You see that? (laughs) 
I like how he shaved the side, like a unicorn. I've seen some NFL guys do that. They usually dye it, though. He didn't dye it. Anyway, um, actually, it's a black and white photo. Maybe it was dyed. Anyway, this guy was rad. He wrote a devotional classic called Loving God. He said there's actually four degrees of love that human beings are capable of, four. And he said this, level one is you just love yourself for your own sake. Selfishness, right? We all, we all get that. We all know that. We're all selfish to a degree. He said that's level one. We all understand that. He said the second level is loving God for your own sake, which means you're going to love God and you're going to serve God for what you can get out of the deal in return, right? God, I'll love you. I'll serve you. I'll come to church as long as this doesn't happen or I get the promotion or whatever, right? He said the third degree is loving God for God's sake. And honestly, I've heard a lot of Christians say this is actually the highest form of love any person can attain to. God, I'm going to love you and serve you. I don't care what happens if I get cancer at 12 and die. Like, I'll serve you no matter what. That's not, loving God for God's sake, not for what you're getting out of it. And most of us might even be tempted to stop there and say, that's it. Claire Vaux said, no, actually, there's one more level. It's called loving yourself for God's sake. He believed that Christianity when it comes to its full fruit, you become comfortable in your own skin. You become comfortable with who God made you to be. You're able to forgive yourself and you're not secretly wishing you were somebody else or had somebody else's life. You are content. You are learning to love yourself saying, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And yeah, I got a past. Everybody's got a past, but you know what? It's under the blood of Jesus and I'm happy that I'm Jeff Ecker. Bernard said that's actually the highest form of love that a human being could attain to. And so perhaps some of you have come this morning and, and you've been in church for like 20 years, bro, but you don't have any assurance that God loves you and is pleased with you. And I want to let you know, if you are putting your faith in Jesus Christ, if you, if you are believing in Jesus, you are a dearly loved child of God. God couldn't be happier with you. And I don't care who you are. You could be, you may be black, white, red. You could be a Latino that likes to laugh really loud. You can laugh loud. In a crowd, you're allowed to do that, okay? You are. There's not a right Christian way to do things. But learning to love yourself for the sake of God, I have a nasally high-pitched voice. I'm a white dude, skinny, a buck 25, wet and wearing boots. I mean, God loves me though. That's who I am, right? I am fearfully and wonderfully made up. And you know what I'm saying? Like, like, that's where the gospel should take us. Because if God has forgiven you, maybe it's time you forgave yourself. Because if you don't have any assurance and any, if you don't have any joy that you're an insider, it's going to make love and other insiders, especially the insiders that you go to church with, it's going to make it awfully difficult. And so here's my third resolution, something to ponder. Make 2020 a year where you accept your acceptance and you embrace your embrace. Make this year a year where you draw even closer It's been said, few Christians actually get close enough to their religion to actually allow it to change them. And I can't put it any more succinct than that. Get close enough to Jesus where you can let Jesus be Jesus and you can just be Jeff. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and ask that you would push the gospel deeper into the unevangelized parts of our souls, that you would root out contentiousness, false holiness, and you would give us a true apprehension of your joy your glory. May people leave interactions with us wanting more, desiring more.
May their palate be wetted with salt. They want to come back again and hang out. They want to come back again and skate at the skate park with your kids. They want to be around you because they know that you are so secure in Jesus, all you want in life is fruit. I pray that for myself firstly, Lord, and for everybody here. We love you and thank you, Father. Amen.